Hello and welcome to episode 71 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Natasha Kassam, Director of the Public Opinion and Foreign Policy Program at the Lowy Institute. We'll be talking to Natasha about China's military pressure on Taiwan and what, if anything, AUKUS can do about it. Natasha Kassam, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you, Salvatore. How are you? I'm well, and thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, look, over the last week or so, China has made more than 100 incursions into Taiwanese airspace. Is there anything that Australia, the US, and AUKUS can do about that? Well, I think there are lots of things that can be done about it, but it's probably important to ask for me and for Australia and America, well, why is Beijing doing this? And I would say it's for three reasons. One is kind of purely from a military capability point of view. You know, uh, China didn't have this capability even just a few years ago. So it's testing its own pilots. It's testing its own planes. It's seeing what it can do. But it's also testing the Taiwanese. It's trying to test how the Taiwanese fighters respond. It's trying to test the Taiwanese people and intimidate them and pressure them to eventually concede to Beijing's demands. And then I think that the really important audience is America and Australia, and that's where we come in. I mean, not just us, but regional partners. You know, I think Beijing is signaling to the broader world that it has red lines when it comes to Taiwan, and it will not see them crossed, and it continues to hold the upper hand in this conflict. Now, I've heard a lot about this potentially wearing down Taiwan's defensive capability through, you know, simple wear and tear on equipment and that sort of thing. Is this really a threat to Taiwan? I mean, it's a threat in terms of the incredible cost that they have to spend on the defense. It's a ridiculous amount of money every time they have to scramble their fighter jets in response. But I really come back to that psychological cost. It really, I think, wears down on the Taiwanese military, the Taiwanese government and the Taiwanese people. It, it, is, it is not successful, I should say, but it is designed to make them see that unification with China as inevitable and that they have no choice but to give in. And, you know, having these very frequent incursions, having, you know, one of the world's superpowers threatened to invade you on the regular, we shouldn't underestimate that cost. And that is a, a bit odd. I mean, it's, it's almost been normalized, the idea that China routinely threatens to invade Taiwan. How serious are those threats? Should we or people on Taiwan be worried about it? I think they should be very worried. I think we should be very worried. And, you know, to come back to your question about AUKUS, you know, Taiwan's freedom and the fact that it remains a free democracy that has not been um, absorbed by China, it, it's very much a sign of successful deterrence. It's 70 years of essentially other countries and Taiwan saying there will be a reaction if you try to do something to us. And AUKUS is just another step in that path. But China is very, very serious about Taiwan's future. It is for now willing to tolerate that Taiwan lives in, in this kind of gray zone. It's willing to tolerate the status quo where Taiwan is not independent. It's excluded from international organizations. It doesn't have formal diplomatic recognition outside of 15 countries. You know, this is a situation that China is willing to tolerate. It would not tolerate 
Taiwan declaring itself to be an independent country recognized by more countries in the world. It would not tolerate um, you know, other countries demonstrating some kind of sovereignty for Taiwan. So, you know, it has its red lines, they are shifting constantly. And the threat of war over Taiwan is very real. I, I would say I don't think it's a short-term concern. I think it's really important to be careful that we, you know, this is not going to happen tomorrow, it's not going to happen next year. Um, but looking out over the 10-year horizon, it is something we have to account for. Now, you've said that China would react uh, fiercely if Taiwan were to declare independence. My understanding is that Taiwan's president, Tsai Ing-wen, maintains repeatedly that Taiwan is already independent, so there's no need to declare independence. Can you help us square that circle? What does Taiwan independence even mean? It, this is it's such a complicated question. Um, you're absolutely right that the current Taiwanese government and previous governments as well have said that we are an independent nation. There's no need for such a declaration. But it is tied up in the history of both Taipei and Beijing at different times claiming to speak for one greater China and agreeing to preserve this ambiguity between the two. So there is a difference between the Taiwanese leadership talking about the Republic of China, their formal name, as an independent nation and talking about Taiwan as an independent nation. And they'll be careful to not stray into that Taiwan is an independent nation territory. Now, we are a live show. and We do take uh, live comments and questions from our guests. And I have to say, Natasha, you have fans in the chat box. We, we had specific readings to you, which I will relay uh, from both uh, Christopher and from Anthony. Um, Christopher wants to ask, is China operating in an ideological bubble with regard to Taiwan? I think ideology is an incredible, incredibly powerful force in China. It's become more so under Xi Jinping. And if you think about the great narrative under which the party operates, which is that uh, they are currently achieving the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. China's taking its rightful place in the world. And a big part of that narrative is ideological. And a big part of that narrative is about maintaining what China considers its territorial integrity. And that also includes annexing Taiwan. And so I, I think ideology is a very important factor in all of this. Anthony wants to, me to ask you about the CPTPP. I had that on my list of questions already, but let's jump into it right now. The, the, the comprehensive partnership, I'm sorry, the comprehensive and progressive <laughs> partnership, the, the whole thing, the CPTPP. Um, the CPTPP is the successor to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was a U.S.-centered uh, trade agreement that the U.S. dropped out of when Donald Trump was elected. Uh, Taiwan has expressed an interest in joining, so has China. Anthony wants to know, would, would Australia veto China's bid for membership in favor of Taiwan's? And if not Australia, would anyone join Australia in making that stand? Or is Australia going to stand alone on that issue? I think that's a really great question. What we can see so far is that Australia is maintaining a very neutral stance and saying that they're going to take the bid on its merits. Now, 
It does have to be um, agreement by consensus. So all of the CPTPP partners have to agree to China joining. And China has to make some pretty big commitments to do that. You know, on the current kind of status of the agreement, China would need to commit to some pretty big economic reforms to make that possible. Now, what's interesting is that China is currently in some kind of political conflict with a very significant portion of the CPTPP members. So Australia, of course, we know where the Australia-China relationship is, but also Japan is the largest economy in the CPTPP, relations with China not so great. Canada, I mean, we've just seen, you know, a hostage exchange take place. All of these different countries would have to agree. I think that, that it's possible they would do that, but not without a price. And for Australia, that price might be the lifting of sanctions on 13 to 14 uh, targeted export industries. That's, you know, that's pure speculation. I, but, you know, I think there is a sense that this could be an opportunity for some leverage in the China relationship. On the Taiwan question, I think this is where it gets quite complicated but interesting. Technically, China and Taiwan should both be able to join the trade agreement. They're both members of the WTO. Uh, China has to tolerated free trade agreements with countries that have free trade agreements with Taiwan. That's complicated, but just for example, Singapore and China have a free trade agreement. Singapore and Taiwan have a free trade agreement. New Zealand is in the same category. So technically it should be possible. But as China is escalating its efforts to isolate and intimidate Taiwan, it's becoming more aggressive about shutting it out out of international institutions. We have seen Chinese uh, foreign ministry officials say that they will oppose Taiwan's bid to join the CPTPP. And Taiwan, it has a much freer market and so is actually a much better candidate to join the CPTPP. Countries are going to be asked to choose between the two, um, but right now, I think they can push that can down the road and say, well, let's see China's case. Let's see what China says it's going to do to be able to join and delay having to make that decision between the two. I would be very amused to hear what Justin Trudeau has to say about China joining his comprehensive and progressive <laughs> Trans-Pacific <laughs> Partnership. Trudeau, of course, is the one who insisted on having progressive put in the name. Uh, but help me work through the, the politics of this, because China, of course, would be the big prize to have in any trade grouping. But of course, we know that if China joined, China would only allow Taiwan to join as a province of China or under some such designation, Chinese Taipei, something like that. If Taiwan were allowed to join, would Taiwan attempt to exclude China in the future? How do you think this would work out if which country joins first and what that means for the future of the CPTPP? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. It takes us into pretty speculative territory, but here's the way I think about it. You're right, China is absolutely the big fish. And if it was able to join and able to meet the requirements without watering down the agreement, I think that would probably be a good thing. The, the probably for me, the, the reason I kind of caveat that is, you know, Australia has firsthand experience of China not living up to WTO commitments. And so the idea that member countries would have confidence that China would live up to the CPTPP commitments, I think is, it is tough. So on balance, I think it would be a good thing to have a big economy like China, but you know, it's a question mark. Um, Taiwan is not going to try to exclude China. They're just, you know, Taiwan is, it recognizes that it is a small nation. It's an important economy. You know, it's an important trading partner for Australia, for example, but they want a seat at the table, not 
at the expense of China, just a seat at the table. And so that's why the CPTPP is really interesting to me. In most international organizations, China is so big and powerful, and Taiwan is kind of a sidelines issue where America, Japan, United, sorry, America, Japan, Australia, and a few others are advocating for Taiwan's inclusion. But in addition to China, China's presence is kind of non-negotiable. The CPTPP is a bit different because on its own, China's bid is questionable. So I, I think that's why this particular scenario could play out a little bit differently. I think Taiwan would be very happy for both countries to join, but China seems to indicate they're not going to agree. Last month's AUKUS partnership announcement and all of the brouhaha over the nuclear submarines quite overshadowed the OSMIN meetings, that is the ministerial meetings between Australia and the United States, in which uh, Maurice Payne and Antony Blinken uh, met in Washington. Uh, during that meeting, they, had a, they declared that Taiwan was, quote, a leading democracy and a critical partner for both countries. Should we place any weight on combined Australia-US support for Taiwan? Uh, absolutely, at least I would. Um, what we've seen in the last few years is a combination of China becoming more aggressive towards Taiwan and then other countries becoming more invested in security and stability for Taiwan. So it's been a kind of interesting response, counter response there. You know, we now see much more regularly Ottawa, Paris, um, Tokyo, Seoul, Canberra speaking publicly about Taiwan and about the need to preserve peace for Taiwan. Um, all of that is a reaction to this behavior that we see from China. Now, the Osmin language, I think, is really interesting because it was only in 2020 that the Osmin statement um, mentioned Taiwan for the first time. Um, so that was only a year ago. And now we see the language has really stepped up in terms of last year, you know, it talked about maintaining informal relations with Taiwan. This year it says strengthening relations with Taiwan. It calls Taiwan a critical partner and a democracy. Um, we know that President Biden is making democratic values the centre of his foreign policy. We heard Prime Minister Morrison say in Perth a few months ago that democracy was also something incredibly important to his foreign policy agenda. So the positioning around Taiwan, I think, is important. It sends a very strong signal to Beijing. And it's also an important evolution in terms of what Australia has been willing to do and say uh, around Taiwan. So what I'm wondering is whether there's kind of more concrete policy coming um, in terms of what Australia has been willing to do. Of course, Austin is a two plus two ministerial, and I didn't really mean to leave out Peter Dutton and Lloyd Austin. Do you think Taiwan these days falls more into Maurice Payne's portfolio at foreign affairs, or is it starting to fall into Peter Dutton's at defense? That is a great question. I think it's both, but I still I think it is still more a matter of diplomacy and foreign policy. I'll tell you why. Um, I think that, you know, a high intensity conflict over Taiwan that could possibly be a nuclear conflict is literally the worst case scenario for the Taiwanese people, for the Chinese people, for the region, for Australia, for the world. 
It doesn't mean it's impossible, but I, I do think it is viewed as the worst case scenario by all the parties involved. And so you have decisions like August that are kind of planning for the worst case, but what you're hoping is that all of the diplomacy will work so you never get there. So for my mind, I still think this is a matter of foreign policy. It's a matter of active and effective diplomacy, and it's a matter of deterrence. So that is, of course, a mix of both portfolios, but uh, that's the way I would think about it. We're usually accustomed to thinking of the United States as playing this deterrent role in the world. But of course, Australia is what, well, we'd like to call a middle power. That is, Australia does have serious capabilities in the region. Is there a role specifically for Australia to play in ensuring peace in the Taiwan Strait or the South China Sea? So if we think about what China is trying to achieve in those places, right? We think about trying to change the status quo through military activities, through diplomatic isolation, through coercion. I, I do think Australia itself has an important role to play, but not on its own. You know, I do think Australia is a part of regional efforts on all of those fronts. And so when it comes to, for just as an example, if if, big if, there is a, you know, idea that one day Australia's nuclear subs will be used to preserve peace in the South China Sea or in the Taiwan Strait, um, all of that would be in order to multiply <laughs> America's efforts. It would never be on our own. And similarly, those diplomatic efforts, I think, should be, you know, with the region, working with Southeast Asia, working with Taiwan, working with Japan and South Korea. So... Australia, I think, has an incredibly important role to play. I think we are already starting to kind of step up and demonstrate our willingness to play those, to play those parts in preserving peace and security. But it has to be a collective effort. It has to be um, a multilateral effort, if possible. You can even see the way our prime minister, for example, has been trying to kind of um, multilateralize Australia's own coercion battles. You know, by taking the 14 demands to the G7 meeting or trying to have references to economic coercion in joint statements with Japan or with France. So um, I think we are trying to make this about collective actions and not something we do by ourselves. There's a debate going on in the chat, a pretty heated debate about whether China or the United States is the more aggressive or revisionist uh, country in the world. Do you have any position on that? I, I understand the debate. I look forward to looking at to reading it later. Um, I do think that the United States has presented a very significant threat to the liberal rules-based order um, in the last few years, particularly under President Trump. I don't think that that can be argued with, in, in my opinion. What, what, where I come down on this issue is that China is the greater threat. And I'll tell you why. It's because in the Chinese system, there is very little accountability and very little transparency. So where we see, in my opinion, foreign policy blenders in the United States and other threats to their democracy, we hear about them, we read about them in the news, we have court cases and we ultimately have elections. And that is the way we can correct and revise and improve. That does not happen in China. We do not have any awareness of these issues. There is no mechanism to correct in that way. And because of that, I do see it as a far greater threat. I see it as a far greater threat, of course, to the people of Taiwan, but also to the, to the Uyghurs, to Tibetans, to 
Chinese people in other countries that are targeted by the Chinese state by virtue of their ethnicity and not really for any other reason. And without that transparency, I just think there can't be that correction. There can't be that freedom of speech and expression and association that we perhaps take for granted here in Australia. So I, I understand why there's that debate, but I do think ultimately the strength of our institutions, the rule of law, and the way that a lot of those rights are enshrined in our political systems mean that we're able to correct it even when we do damage to regional security in the way that the United States has. I'd like to remind everyone that On Liberty is a live show, which means if you're watching this at a later date, next time, join us Wednesdays at 12.30 and you can get your questions in via chat. And I do have a question for you, uh, Natasha, coming from a talk in the chat. Um, is there any way for Western countries to slow China's economic growth rate implicitly as a way to retard China's growing power. And I'll, I'll tack on to that. If we can slow China's growth rate, rate, should we be thinking about attempting to slow China's growth rate? That's a really interesting question. Um, so can we? I think yes, but only by incurring significant costs ourselves and costs that I would argue are not in the best interests of the Australian people or the American people or whoever might be involved in such an effort. You know, it would, any kind of serious economic slowdown in China has effects everywhere, um, and particularly here in Australia, where despite the tensions in the relationship, we're still selling 40% of our exports to China. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not sure that that's something we should do with, because of the costs that would incur elsewhere. And also because, I mean, ultimately the size of China's market means it's I'm not sure how much of an effect we could have anyway. Um, and what, what we're going to see, what we are seeing already is some level of decoupling, right? And so that will continue, right? I think you'll have uh, technological divides, for example, in the future where um, China dominates one part of kind of global technology and the United States and Europe dominate another part. I think those kinds of things are inevitable, but a natural economic slowdown in China, I'm not sure if that's the answer. I will also just add that, of course, China has its own economic issues, as we can see happening through Evergrande, its demographic divide, its environmental problems. Like those are all going to um, get get more serious in the future, and that doesn't have much to do with external countries' pressures. Re regarding Evergrande, by any chance, do you have any investment advice to offer our viewers? Too late, I'm afraid, but I, I definitely don't give financial advice, but it is interesting that in the past, a company like Evergrande would have been seen as too big to fail in China, and that appears to no longer be the case. It looks like it's going to unwind, but we don't know what that looks like. We don't know what you know a bankruptcy claim really looks like when a giant company collapsed in China, so watch the space. <laughs> you said that the world of technology is likely to... Um separate into distinct US and Chinese spheres. Did you mean that simply geographically, that of course there will be a Chinese internet and a global internet, or did you also mean that functionally, that there'll be certain areas dominated by China, like perhaps quantum computing, while other areas are dominated by the US, perhaps you know, microprocessors? 
Yeah, I, look, it's possible. Um, what I think is kind of going to be clearest is the critical infrastructure question where you're going to see five and six G networks that are really split into in terms of who's willing to have them build it. You'll see maybe similar things in cloud computing, maybe even digital currencies eventually. I mean, this is all much further down the track, but for me, that's kind of the clearest signs of decoupling where you can see you know, actual walls going up and at certain points, the United States or China telling countries they have to choose between the two. You know, Southeast Asia, Australia, other countries have been pretty good at hedging, I would say, between the United States and China on a lot of different issues. But on some of these questions, and Huawei and 5G is a good example of one, you know, it's a binary, it's a yes or no answer. And I think that uh, digital technology going forward is going to have more of those binary questions. Natasha, we're going to have to start wrapping up in just a minute or two, but I, I do want to ask you about something you wrote last month. You said last month that China was more capable of taking Taiwan by force than it was a decade ago. Granting that, is it capable of taking Taiwan by force today? No, and not easily, I think would be my answer. Certainly more capable, but you know, the best intelligence we have on these things from open source uh, platforms is that they're still a couple of years away from having confidence to be able to mount that kind of a mission. And just to be clear, having the capability doesn't mean they have the political will to do it as well. So even if they're not there in terms of capability, just because they get there doesn't mean it's going to then happen. Are there things that Taiwan can or perhaps should be doing to defend itself short of calling on a US or potential Australian or Japanese assistance? Taiwan is doing quite a lot in this space. It's investing in asymmetric defense, it's improving its military. And of course it is really, I think, um, stepping up in terms of outreach to partners that may defend it like the United States, Australia and Japan. Um, probably more needs to be done in terms of defense spending, more needs to be done in terms of training. You know, we hear a lot of complaints coming out of the Taiwanese military in terms of their preparedness for some kind of a conflict. So, so there's much more that could be done in that space. But you know, we've seen what four large arms sales from the United States to Taiwan in the last few years, other kind of quite clear commitments to Taiwan's defense. So I would expect all of that to continue to increase. All right, a final question, Natasha, and this is a bit of a left field question. If you were to have asked me in 1988, which may be before you were born, uh, if you were to have asked me in 1988, which country was likely to be democratic first? Taiwan or China, I might very well have said China. Of course, Taiwan's come a long way since then. Um, what is your own prognosis for the future of democracy in China? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I would have said the same in 88 or maybe the same given back then you had similar kind of village level elections, you had competition between in, in a party in both cases in Taiwan and in China, they've obviously gone in very different directions and Taiwan is, you know, a leading democracy in um, Asia and the world today. Um, my prognosis for democracy in China is not good. I think that Xi Jinping um, has very effectively centralized power and harnessed nationalism and ideology to uh, repress dissent and to generally deliver economic benefits to the majority. Um, and and it, 
it has been successful enough, I think, to ensure that most people are comfortable with the system. Most, obviously not everyone, are comfortable with the system as it stands, or at the very least can't imagine a good alternative. Part of that is on Xi Jinping, part of that is on the rest of us, where democracy has not done a good job of defending itself in the last few years, and we have not provided a model of virtue for others to look up to. That's true in a lot of countries. So part of that responsibility lies with us, but no, I, I don't envision any kind of liberalizing in China in the next, let's say, 20, 30 years. Natasha Kassam, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Salvatore. Uh, thanks also to our producer, Nico Malian. Our executive producer is Max Hoff Weaver. The director of the Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer. I'm Salvatore Babonis. Next week, I'll be talking to classicist James Kirstead on Athenian democracy. Please join us then, 1230 Wednesday on On Liberty. <laughs>